Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Michael Christie at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Good evening, everybody. It's wonderful to be here with you again this evening. I, uh, <laughs> when I spoke this morning down at Kubi, uh, my daughter whispered to me as, as, uh, as she was about to leave for children's church, good luck. And I just... <laughs> confess that I felt a bit intimidated by that. <laughs> Obviously, I needed it. <laughs> a bit like break a leg, but uh, at least that's meant positively. So, <laughs> But it is wonderful to be with you again tonight, and my pleasure to continue our series on the surrendered life. The first week, we looked at the surrendered life as the road to suffering. Last week, it was the road to contentedness. This week, it's the road to fruitfulness. How do we live a fruitful life? How do we live a life of value, of purpose and meaning? It's something that we all want. It's something innate to our human creative uh, nature. But how do we actually do it? And what does it look like? You know, the world says it's one thing. The world tends to uh, speak of fruitfulness in terms of living well, a life well lived And uh, an influential philosopher in the Enlightenment period called Voltaire uh, once said this, he said, God gave us the gift of life, but it's up to us to give ourselves the gift of living well. It may not surprise you to hear that Voltaire was very critical of Christianity. God gave us the gift of life, but it's up to us to give ourselves the gift of living well. The question is, how do we figure out what living well looks like? And Uh, There's a story that I want to share with you of a man named Alfred Nobel, or Nobel, and he lived in the 1800s. And during his life, Nobel was a chemist, an engineer, he was an innovator, an inventor, but he was also a weapons manufacturer. He had 90 weapons factories scattered across the world, and he's credited with actually creating and inventing and producing en masse dynamite. In 1888, uh, Alfred Nobel's brother Ludwig died and a French newspaper uh, mistakenly thought that it was Alfred and posted up an obituary to Alfred and it read like this. It condemned him for his invention of dynamite and stated, the merchant of death is dead. Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. Nobel was so devastated by how he would be remembered that he went out and changed the terms of his will. What he did was write in terms that said the bulk of his estate, which in today's terms would be worth about 300 million US dollars, he said that that would now be set aside to establish something called the Nobel Prizes. And these prizes would be awarded, in his words, to those who during the preceding year had conferred the greatest benefit on mankind. And today these awards continue some 130 years later and most famously in the form of the Nobel Peace Prize. But Nobel had spent his life amassing wealth and tasting success. He had a fulfilling career He was respected for the work that he did on some level. He contributed innovation, technology. He constructed an empire. He had all that money could buy. But when the fruit of his life was laid out before him, 
it shook him to the core and he realised that what he had done had no lasting value or worth and with the few years he had left, he tried to do something about that. But the question it leads us to consider tonight is if, our, if we were to wake up tomorrow or not wake up tomorrow and our obituaries were printed for ourselves, what would they say about us? What would your obituary read like today if it were to be printed up? How have you been living your life? What sort of fruit have you been producing? And more importantly, if we were to come before the judgment seat of Christ tonight, if we were to walk out that door and Jesus were to come again, what would he see and what would he say about the lives we had been living and what we had been pursuing and the fruit that had come from it? As we think about these questions, let's turn to our reading today, which will come from John 12, 20 to 26, and Gary's got that for us. Thanks, mate. Reading tonight, John 12, 20 to 26. Now, there were some Greeks among these who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was at Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Thanks, Gary. I want to start by just unpacking a little bit the verses that lead up to our passage tonight because at the start of the passage it says, now, now there were some Greeks. And that word now is a marker, an indicator that the Apostle John uses throughout his gospel to say that what is coming now is built upon what has come before. And so what we see before this passage in John 12 It starts a little bit in verses 9 to 11 where John tells us that people had started believing in Jesus and started flocking to him in great number to come before him and to follow him. Then it moves straight into the story of Palm Sunday. And you may know this, Jesus is is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate the remembrance of Israel being taken out of slavery by God, and Jesus is on his way to the temple to celebrate with everyone else. Jews from miles around would come and celebrate this festival in Jerusalem. And as he's walking to the city, a whole flock of people hear about it and they rush out to meet him. And they pick up their palm branches and they start shouting these words Hosanna, a Hebrew word for save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Then as that's unfolding and this whole crowd has gone out to see Jesus on his way into the city, the Pharisees see what's going on and they say to themselves, 
Look how the whole world has gone after him. Immediately after they say that comes our passage and now some Greeks are coming and approaching the disciples wanting to see Jesus for themselves. The word Greek there is another way of saying Gentile or non-Jew, Greek-speaking people, which was most people in the Roman Empire. The disciples take their request to Jesus and then his response comes in verses 23 to 26, which is where we'll be focusing on most of tonight. But before we get to Jesus' response, what I really want to see or point out is that Jesus' reply comes at a point in time when his life and ministry is gaining significant momentum. People are believing in him in droves. They're coming out to him as he approaches the city to proclaim that he's the king of Israel. The Pharisees recognize this and that they're losing control of the people as the leaders, as the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders of the Jews, they're losing control and now they're saying the whole world is coming out to Jesus. And then the Apostle John seems to be very deliberate in saying immediately after that, that now even the Gentiles are coming to see him. And it's significant because the gospel accounts and our own focus on Jesus tends to be that he was rejected. You know, that the response of those he was around at the time he was on earth was suffering, affliction, rejection, being ignored, being neglected. And for a large part, that was true. But at this particular point in time, the writer is very deliberate, very careful in showing us that there was a moment in Jesus' life where the whole world was at his fingertips. They were coming to him and recognizing or starting to recognize that this is the Christ. This may be the savior we've been waiting for. The Messiah of the Jews and a light to the Gentiles and the one who would usher in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, as he replies, is facing this moment of these people coming to him. And he could take up in their eyes this earthly position as their king. They would expect that he would, you know, begin this sort of coup where he freed the people from the Romans and led them into a new establishment as the chosen one. And in that position, he could have received untold power and fame, riches and pleasure of all sorts. But as he faces this moment, he turns away from that, away from the world and uses this moment to explain to his disciples that his glory is not going to come from taking up an earthly throne or accepting what the world has to offer. In verses 23 and 24, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, but very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And the words many seeds there in the Greek can also be translated much fruit, which is where we get our topic tonight. If it dies, it produces much fruit. And Jesus is using this illustration with the seeds to explain why he must die to be glorified. And to help explain this, I brought in uh, just a little experiment that you may have done in primary school yourself. This was one my son Benji did recently. He's in pre-primary. And it's one where they put the seed in and then watch what happens once the seed's in the soil. But in my other hand is um, a whole bunch of seeds, pumpkin and uh, 
corn seeds because they're the biggest ones I could find. But you probably still won't be able to see them. But anyway, I'll try and hold up what I've got there. No, it's not going to work without me spilling them everywhere. But Basically, what I wanted to show you is that every seed has this protective outer layer called a seed coat. But within the seed coat is what they call the germs of life. And if the seed stays like this in this form, then the life within it is preserved. If it were to be planted, it wouldn't. But in its current form, it's preserved as it is and it remains safe. But it's also unfruitful and ineffective. It doesn't achieve what it's there to do. But when it's put into the soil like these seeds were at some point, then the life germs within the seed burst forth in the right conditions. And it destroys the seed in its original form, but it brings forth a new life in the form of roots and stem until it grows into fruit, as you see in the picture there, or flowers, depending on the seed. And in this illustration, Jesus is saying that I am the seed and we are the fruit. He's saying that on his own as the seed, he could have preserved his own life. He could have chosen to do what he wanted to do. But if he did that, the divine life within himself, like it's inside this seed, would not have come forth to you or to me. Without his death, there would be no worthy offering, no blood for the forgiveness of sin. And if there's no ability to forgive sin, there's no release of the Holy Spirit and the life that he brings and the empowerment to bear fruit. Jesus could have preserved himself in this form and he would have lived life as God on earth and then he would have passed into a kingdom of heaven, but it would have been a population of one. And Jesus says, I cannot abide by this. This is not why I came. I came so that many would be saved. He's explaining to his disciples that he will pay the ultimate sacrifice. He will surrender and suffer and die so that we may be filled with his life and grow as his fruit in the world so that the kingdom of God can come to the earth and reign forevermore through us through many seeds, through great fruit, not just one God in flesh man. And notice that really, though the seed perishes in its current form like this, it actually is still alive, just in a different form, in the roots, in the stem. Jesus is still alive, but he's not in his bodily form among us at this time. He rules and reigns from heaven and in and through us on this earth. This is how he's glorified, through his death, his resurrection, and his coming and filling our lives with himself, through his Holy Spirit. Jesus is the road to fruitfulness, is the starting point, and what he means when he says, I must fall like a seed to the ground. But as we read on in verses 25 and 26, we discover that it's not only about what he will do, but it's also about what he wants us to do. He's creating and showing us as his disciples the way we all must go to be fruitful. We all need to live a surrendered life, he's saying, or a crucified life, as Tozer would say. 
And so I just want to unpack a little bit some of the, the aspects of a surrendered life that he mentions in this passage. And the first is, as we've seen in his own case, dying to the world. We live a surrendered life first by dying to the world. Because there's two aspects in life on this earth that we can choose. The world's way or God's way. The world way is, is self-seeking. It's prideful, it's evil, it's sin, it's temporary, it's physical, it's fleshly, it focuses on the senses, senses, taste, touch, sound, hearing, what I can get for myself. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says that there's seed that's sown in people's lives, but because of the worries of this life, because of the pleasures or other desires of this life, and because of the deceitfulness of wealth, the, world, the word sorry, is choked in them and they don't become fruitful. This world will, might even give us temporary satisfaction, but it has no lasting value. God, on the other hand, says, follow me and I will give you life. I am a life that seeks the benefit of others, that seeks good, that seeks righteousness. I am spirit and eternal. Paul says it this way in Romans 6.13, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, dying to the world and living for God. The second aspect of the surrendered life that's really like the the other side of the same coin is hating your own life. So on the one hand, we don't live as the world wants us to live, believe what the world wants us to believe. We believe what God wants us to believe. We live the way God wants us to live. This is dying to the world. The second is hating our life, our own life in this world. Verse 25, Jesus says, Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it. And he's not trying to say that we should literally kill ourselves, but deny the self-life, deny the pride of life, the I, the me, myself, and I drive to do what we want, when we want it, however we want it. The Greek word for hate there, miseo, means to hate, to detest, to love less or esteem less. And it's used to express love for someone or something less than someone or something else. In other words, we renounce one choice in favour of another. So I love the Fremantle Dockers. I choose them. I've chosen them. They're my preference of a football team. And that, for me, means that I hate every other football team. I prefer them less to the Fremantle Dockers, you know, because they get in the way of the Dockers receiving the premiership, receiving the glory. They also get in their own way, but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll let that go. That's not the point. <laughs> you know, I love them, and so I hate everyone else. Yes, Simon, even the Eagles. <laughs> Blasphemous, I know, but... Such is my love for Fremantle that everything else seems like folly to me. So what Jesus is saying is that we need to love our lives on this earth, our physical lives, less than we love him and his life in and for us. 
One commentator says it this way, the self must be displaced by another. The endless, shameless focus on self must be displaced by focus on Jesus Christ. The third aspect of the surrendered life comes in verse 26 when Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. You know, it's this call to lay lay our lives down, not just to uh, smile at Jesus, not just to say, oh, you're great, thank you for salvation, but it's to follow him, to serve him, to be his hands and feet in this world, no matter what trials or challenges come our way, and they will, don't they? They come regularly. And the truth is, I don't know about you, but when I look at those three things up on the screen, and hopefully this is, is something that you recognize, is that it's actually quite hard. Dying to this world, what it says is true, it, it, putting that to one side to hold on to what God says is true, denying the self within us to not pursue our own pleasure or riches or gain, that's hard. Following Jesus, serving him and him alone, it's hard. Death is not pleasant. Surrender goes against every natural instinct. That's why Jesus says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. But it becomes easier if we keep our eyes fixed on the prize, so to speak. We don't only do it alone, but we can do it knowing the joy that we find in Jesus brings great reward. You know, he says in, uh, in Matthew 13, I think it is, that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. He comes across this pearl of great price and he sells everything he has for it, for its value. The kingdom of heaven is also like uh, someone who finds treasure hidden in a field. They go away, they sell everything they have to buy this field, so they get the treasure. It's as we look and discover and experience and taste the goodness of life in Christ that we can live this surrendered life. And in our passage today, Jesus doesn't just say, follow me to your own death. He puts alongside it the fruit or the reward for doing so. So in the first instance in verse 24, when he says, die to the world, he also says, do it because there'll be fruit fruit of Christ likeness. See, as we're connected as the plants, we're connected to him and we become like him and fit for purpose. We don't always look the same as one another because he has different things for each one of us. But we are filled with his life and we become like him. And as we become like him and get filled with his spirit, you know, we start to live out what the Bible calls fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as we grow in those things, it begins to be noticed by the world around us. It does. When we genuinely embody the life of Christ and the fruit of His Spirit, these qualities of love and joy and peace, etc., the world notices. People see because they don't see it in the world. But it's hard. You know, I, I gave the example this morning of um, the way this works for me in, in one thing with my children. I, you know, as I said earlier, I love the Fremantle Dockers. So uh, 
AFL, Aussie Rules is one of my, my interests, one of my few, and uh, each week I take time out of my week, probably the only time I have for myself, where I watch the game, the Dockers game, uh, for whatever good it does me. But, uh, but as a... <laughs> oh, no, I won't say that. <laughs> I, um, yeah. And I do that because it's something that I love and it's something that gives me joy and interest out of the week. But it's also a time when I'm in my home and stationary. And those two qualities are rare sometimes for my kids. So, of course, during the Dockers game, they will come and not watch the game and not cheer the Dockers necessarily. They'll come and climb all over me and talk about their week, or not really their week, but about what Mario game they're playing or uh, DVDs they've been watching or things that I have very little personal interest in. And there's this tension in that moment. This I says... I deserve this time to watch my game. I work hard. I don't have much time to myself. This is all I really ask for out of my week for myself. But at that same moment, as that I voice is rising up within me, love for my children and what they receive from me matters. And I would be, and I am ashamed to say, that there are times where I snap at them. Because the I voice is too strong. But then there's other times when I say, okay, Lord, this is your life. They are my children. And I love them. And I want good for them. And I don't want to be bound by my own self-interest. And others, as we begin to embody Christ, as his spirit gets to work in us, if we surrender to him, then the world will see the fruit we have to offer and Jesus will be glorified through us. The second aspect of uh, fruit or reward is in verse 25, when we're hating our life in this world, we exchange it for eternal life. This is the trade of a lifetime. We're trading something that's temporary, something that's finite. And Dan gave us a really good example of this two weeks ago with the rope is it's a drop in the ocean compared to what comes. And this life is troubled. It's painful. But the one to come is joy-filled and peaceful. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The other thing that comes as reward is in verse 26 as he says, follow and serve me, go where I go. He says, I will honour, my father, sorry, will honour you. That word honour also means valued, precious. The father in heaven will find us precious in his sight. Truly there is no greater reward than the king of kings and the lord of lords finding us precious and valuable in his sight. I want to close tonight with a story, a true story that comes from a man named Ernest Gordon. And Gordon was a British soldier who fought in the Second World War and he was captured by the Japanese and put in a prisoner of war camp. And these Japanese prisoner of war camps were literally like hell on earth, as you'd imagine. The Japanese had this honour-shame culture where... Uh, a person who surrendered was really 
less than human. It was dishonourable. And so they didn't give the prisoners enough food or supplies. They worked them to the bone. And the men were so frightened that they began to turn on each other. Gordon describes what they went, to in, went through in this way. As conditions steadily worsened, as starvation, exhaustion and disease took an ever-growing toll, the atmosphere in which we lived was increasingly poisoned by selfishness, hatred and fear. We lived by the rule of the jungle, survival of the fittest. It was a case of I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. The weak were trampled underfoot, the sick ignored or resented, the dead forgotten. When a man lay dying, we had no word of mercy. When he cried out for help, we averted our heads. We were forsaken men and now even God had left us. But this all changed on one particular day. Gordon and his fellow prisoners uh, each day would be forced to work on this railroad through the jungle that was heading into India for a possible invasion. And at the end of the day's work, the Japanese soldiers would get them together and collect up all the tools so that they couldn't use them in the dead of night to fight back. All the shovels and pitchforks and whatnot. And on this particular day, when they were about to head back to camp, a Japanese guard started shouting suddenly that a shovel was missing and he demanded to know who had taken it, but no one moved. He again demanded that the guilty party move forward, but no one did. Flying into a rage, then he started shouting, all die, all die. And he cocked his gun and started pointing it at the lined up prisoners. It was at that moment that one man stepped forward and the guard beat him to death in front of everyone there. When they returned to the camp, the tools were counted again and it was discovered that the shovels were not missing. The Japanese officer had just miscounted. Words spread through the whole camp that an innocent man had died to save others and it completely transformed the atmosphere of the camp. Many men began to seek answers about how to prepare for death and be ready to meet God and Gordon became their unofficial chaplain. A small church was erected and prayer was held every night. It also brought about profound change in the attitude and behaviour of the men. They began to treat each other like brothers with care and kindness. And they started a jungle university where prisoners from different backgrounds and interests would teach classes to one another. Artists would gather what material they could from the ground and prepare an exhibition to show everyone to keep themselves entertained. Musicians would get little bits of bamboo and craft jungle instruments that they could hold recitals for one another. Gardeners would secretly tend beds of medicinal plants so that they could nurse their wounded and sick back to life. And prisoner-on-prisoner crime dropped dramatically. The change, the transformation was so profound that when the war was over and the Allies won... These men were able to face their captors, stand in front of them and say, no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. And Gordon said these words, death was still with us, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between forces that made for life and those that made for death. 
Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-intelligence, laziness and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity and creative faith were the essence of life. Turning mere existence into living in the truest sense. These were gifts of God to men. There was still death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life in fellowship. Now, I bring you this story because it's such a profound snapshot of what Jesus has done for us and the way this fruitfulness works. Jesus, innocent as he was, gave his life so that our souls could live. He gave his life so that we may see his example and see that it's the truest form of life. It's the fruitful life. And then as we see and understand and grow in the sense of this sacrifice that he's made for us, then we would begin to live and love others above ourselves in a surrendered life. Let's pray. Going to enter into a time of communion soon. And as we do, I just want to ask you to take a moment to pause and reflect on your life at the moment. What kind of life have you been living? Is it a life that serves yourself, what you really want, what you really feel you deserve? Is it a life that honors the world? Or is it a life that honors Jesus? Because the first life will be unfruitful. The first life will not receive the good fruit. But the Christ life will bear great fruit. It will bring glory to Jesus. And it will bring untold, everlasting life for you. If your life has been more for the world and for yourself lately, then just take this time of pause and reflection to surrender it all back to Jesus. If there's a particular area in your life of habitual sin that you just can't seem to break, then surrender it to Jesus and ask him to burst forth new life and freedom in that area. Ask him to shape and mold your will and your way for his glory. Jesus is here tonight to do a work in you. His Holy Spirit is here right now to bring that transformation of life that we saw in the prisoners of war to bear fruit for Him. But it requires surrender. There's no other option 
If you want to live for Jesus and for the reward of heaven, you must lay down your life. Holy Spirit, would you reveal yourself to every heart here tonight? Would you bring to the surface anything that is holding us back from the fullness of the Christ-like life? Would you cleanse us and fill us with your fruit as we eat and drink together? We ask this in your matchless name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.